Um, this morning, it is our privilege, as you know, um, by the emails that went out, to have with us Dr. Larry Lloyd. Many of you may uh, be familiar with Larry after his 40 years of ministry here in the Memphis area. But Larry's a Memphian. He's a Central High School guy and then a graduate of Rhodes College. He began his ministry life with Young Life um, and began the ministry of Young Life at Melrose High School back in 1975 and then was uh, helpful in starting neighborhood Christian centers here in the city in 1978. He uh, then went to Fuller Seminary out where I'm from in California and uh, received there his Master of Divinity and Doctor of Ministry degrees and subsequently returned to Memphis in 1987 to help uh, create the Memphis Leadership Foundation. Um, in 1997, Larry joined with some local business leaders to form the Hope Christian Community Foundation. And then in 2009, Larry returned uh, again to Memphis Leadership Foundation, where he currently serves as their president. He's authored a book um, recently. It's called Recovering from Racism. And we want you to know that we would have this, or we may uh, order it for you here in our bookstore. And I know it'll be helpful for the things that you'll be hearing this morning as well. Um, Larry is an elder at uh, Ho our sister church, Hope um, Presbyterian, and uh, he serves on the pastoral staff there as well. He's been married for 40 years to Becky, and they have four grown daughters, and that's a whole lot to say. We are really happy to have you with us, Larry. Good morning, sir. Thank you. It's good to be with you. I think this is on. And uh, yeah, I had four daughters, and three of them got married in the same in the same calendar year, all within nine months. That's why I'm bald. And you got you got the boss of the mosque coming in a, in, in a next month. Uh, I play a little golf. I actually uh, I know John Dewald will be here next month because he needs to learn how to putt. Uh, but he says he's not playing golf much anymore. But uh, Lauren is, uh, you'll be really blessed with, uh, he's a putting genius. If you ever watched him play, he's, he can putt. It's, uh, I three putt on a normal, on a normal day. Uh, so it's good to be with you. We're going we're gonna to look at a few scriptures today. Um, and the title of my uh, presentation is, The City is a Playground, Not a Battleground. Now that might sound strange. Uh, given that what we have witnessed here in Memphis and across our country, um, the murder, homicide rate in the 52 largest cities in the United States uh, since January has spiked 18% increase over last year. We've seen a decline in violent crime for the last two decades, and we're trying to figure out, at least the sociologists and the FBI and criminologists are trying to figure out what exactly is going on. They're calling it the Ferguson effect. They're calling it other effects, uh, but something is happening. And, uh, and Joe Hunter with Gang Ministries here in North Memphis knows too well that our young people are in despair. Uh, their education is inferior, and their hope for the future is grim. And when I put all those three together and the, the lack of parenting, uh, single parent, uh, as you know, single parenting uh, in, the, in the United States is an all-time high. In 1950s and 60s, single parenting among white families and black families was about the same. 
Uh, and now, in the, in, in, in in the Mid-South, I think 70%, Joe can correct me, but about 70% of all children born last year in Shelby County were to single parents. There is a need for men to get involved, uh, to take on the task of parenting, fathering children uh, as foster and as uh, surrogate parents. So it might sound strange that I read Zechariah chapter 8, verses 3 through 5, which is the sort of the backbone of what I want to share with you today. This is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with one hand, with cane in hand because of their age. And the city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. Isn't that a wonderful picture of the new Jerusalem? This is the Jerusalem that Zechariah envisioned. Now this text, with so many others in the Old and New Testament, has informed what we've been doing for the last 40 years here in Memphis and also in Los Angeles. Building playgrounds to take the place of battlegrounds. Major urban areas across our country, Chicago, New York, Memphis, Los Angeles, San Diego, have communities that look more and more like battlegrounds today, much unlike the picture we have in Zechariah, where the most vulnerable, the children and the elderly, can, don't live in peace and are afraid to walk out their door. So our work in Memphis, uh, with the Memphis Leadership Foundation and other leadership foundations in our association, there are 75 of us across the country. Memphis is actually the largest one in the world. We have, I'll be in South Africa with three of them uh, in August, Victoria, Cape Town, and Johannesburg, and Soweto, uh, in Nigeria, in Haiti, in Dominican, India, Central America. Uh, most of those, uh, 40 of those leadership foundations here in America. But what we have in common is we are about rebuilding cities, seeking the shalom of the cities in which we are located, turning battlegrounds into playgrounds. So today I want to encourage you to think about this in your own life and how you can be a playground builder here, uh, not only at Second, but the churches you represent. So before we get into this idea of the playground, I must acknowledge that my theology of ministry, particularly ministry in the city, especially ministry among the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, the left out and the left behind, was shaped in 1968 upon the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. I was at Central High School at that point. I grew up in a middle class, upper class home in Midtown. I grew up in a conservative evangelical church where we went every Sunday, Wednesday night and Sunday night. We were at church every time the doors opened. But during those days, in the late 1960s, when I was in high school, something snapped. It appeared that the whole city might go up in flames. And all because of the teaching of a gospel preacher from Atlanta who asked that the sanitation workers here in Memphis be treated like men. The I Am a Man placards were a stark reminder that they were treated otherwise. In fact, major cities across our country did go up in flames. You'll remember Detroit, Newark, Los Angeles. Racism and injustice towards African Americans had come to a head 
And Memphis was just another lightning rod that added fuel to a fire that had been simmering for hundreds of years. So there was a question in my mind as a teenager growing up in this environment. Was the gospel I had been raised with the gospel of the civil rights movement? Was the Jesus that Dr. King and other preachers, that primarily preachers led the civil rights movement, was the Jesus they were talking about the same Jesus that I had been taught about? As we all know, the evangelical church in Memphis, white evangelicalism that is, were not only disengaged from the civil rights movement, but in most cases adamantly opposed. In fact, as I came to find out, racism in my own church and in churches like ours was pretty much an accepted reality. We were taught, of course, to lead a morally exemplary life, uh, which in those days meant no smoking, no drinking, no drugs, and no sex. Nothing was ever said about racism or injustice. That just was never a sermon topic. So in my teenage years at Central High School, some of the icons of the civil rights movement sent their kids there. And I had the rare opportunity as a privileged white kid to have cross-racial relationships with some of these young men whose fathers and mothers were icons in the movement. Maxine Vasco Smith, Samuel Billy Kyles and his children. And I began to wonder about the theology and the Jesus that I had been raised with. Now this backdrop is important. So as a theologically evangelical Christian myself, working in the heart of the city for 40 years, I found very few Christian voices, evangelical voices in the 60s and 70s being raised in the pursuit of social justice. Evangelical Christianity had divorced social action from social justice. There was a pendulum swing. There was the social gospel that had been raised by Walter Rauschenbusch in the, last, in the late part of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century, teaching at Union Theological Seminary in New York. And he wrote the book, The Social Gospel, and that really rocked the Christian world because he believed that if we just reformed society, this was, this was post-millennialism, if we just reformed society enough, we would bring the kingdom of God in. Well, after World War I and World War II, that sort of was dashed to pieces. And so the pendulum swung back to the right to say we don't want to have anything to do with social gospel. It's all about personal salvation. And so we divorced the two as evangelicals, largely in the 20th century, on until the 1960s when this radical person named Dr. Martin Luther King began to raise a different issue. So we opted for an individualistic gospel that often ignored the horizontal dimensions of the same gospel. Loving my neighbor meant loving someone who looked like me and acted like me and voted like me. But a careful reading of scripture would paint a very different picture. That picture reflects a God who loves the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, the left out and left behind, the prisoner, the orphan, the widow, the refugee, and the immigrant. Jesus was not a middle-class bigot, but a friend of sinners like you and me. He was a friend of lepers and widows, the sick, the lame, Samaritans and Gentiles. And in the South, but I dare say across the country, America, in, in America, whites began to flee the city. 
moved to the suburbs called white flight. That happened in the late 60s throughout the 70s, which led to a diminishing tax base, disinvestment in public education, leaving the poor at the mercy of government programs. Once vibrant playgrounds like Orange Mound, figuratively speaking, began to diminish and suffer, and battlegrounds began to take their place. And our cities still suffer today. We don't have to pour over the statistics uh, to point this out, but just recently CNN reported that 50% of all children in public education in the United States are at or below poverty. Urban education in every major city in the United States is failing. Or we read Michelle Alexander's book, which I would commend to you, called The New Jim Crow, which is a convincing and well-documented commentary on what we might call now the military-industrial-penal complex. As we lock up young men of color at alarming rates at younger ages for longer and longer sentences, further devastating families and communities in our city, and upon return to normal life, unable to keep or get a job because of their felony conviction. Yet at the same time, and get this, the majority of Americans live in 42 cities. Over 50% of all Americans live in 42 cities, and Memphis is one of those cities. 75% of all Americans are now considered urban, living in cities of 50,000 or more. And did you know that in 2013, one out of every two people in the world are urban? 60 million people every year move to cities, and most of those cities are in the South, South America, Africa, and India. Now, that's a little backdrop. We now live in an urban city, not a global village, but a global city. Put that on. Evangelism and mission going forward in the 21st century must be urban missiology, because that's where all the people are moving. But cities are not new. This is what we do. We're creative. We're made in God's image. We're made to be in relationship. We build cities. From the city that Cain built when he killed his brother to the city that we see in Revelation, our eternal home is an urban reality. Isn't it interesting that John describes our eternal existence in urban imagery, the New Jerusalem, with streets and houses. If we don't like cities now, we're not going to like heaven. And if we don't like racial diversity now, you're all, the folks that look like me in this audience, we're all going to be in a minority because the majority of Christian church growth in the world today is non-white. Thank God for immigration and refugees. The only churches in America growing right now are churches of color. All other major denominations, including EPC, is losing members. So I would maintain, in fact, that cities are means of God's grace. And that's what I mean by playgrounds. Cities are means of God's common grace from Genesis on. Now, what I mean by this is, is, is that common grace is God's love for all of humanity. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. So common grace is God's grace for all of humanity, even those who are not believers, because if it weren't for God's common grace, we would have wiped us out. We deserve that. But his grace is for humanity we call common grace. We have air to breathe, food to eat, rain that grows our crops. 
So cities are a logical consequence of our humanity, of our creativity, of our need to be in relationship. They are a means of common grace. Cities have hospitals, conduct medical research, have universities, economic engines for jobs, places of art and culture. Cities are wonderful expressions of God's grace and man's creativity, a place where the homeless can find shelter and seek health care, where jobs are created, ideas are exchanged. I love cities. I love Memphis. My second favorite city is Chicago. I love Chicago. That's where I trained for Young Life on the west side. And that city is so vibrant. So the question is begged, does God love cities? Does God love Memphis? Or are cities an aberration, a curse, a result of our fallen nature? And if he does love cities, our city, how are we to love her best? If he loves our city and our city is a means of common grace, what is our role in building playgrounds to take the place of battlegrounds? So to the first question, does God love cities, I would say yes. It's all throughout Scripture. Did you know that in the basic Greek and Hebrew word for city is mentioned 1,200 times in the Old and New Testament? 1,200 times the word city in Greek and in Hebrew. And there are 119 different cities mentioned in those 1,200 references. Think about the Apostle Paul, the great and first urban missionary. Where did he plant churches? To the church, churches of Galatia, to the church at Ephesus, the second largest city in the Roman Empire, to the church at Rome, to the church at Corinth. Paul planted churches in major cities across the Roman Empire. Now, why did he do that? Because he knew if he planted churches in cities, it would amplify throughout culture. I believe that the book of Acts, Luke is trying to show us that the Great Commission is that Paul and the uh, disciples started on would culminate in Paul's getting to Rome, the center of the Roman world and empire. Cities have always been amplifiers. Think about it. Culture is amplified from cities. Research, St. Jude, the things that happen in cities then permeate all of culture. I was uh, teaching at uh, Fuller Seminary in a, in a, uh, a program uh, uh, that was uh, at Hope, in Hope, uh, Michigan, at Hope College. Uh, no, that would be, uh, uh, what, where did the tulips grow in, in uh, Holland? Holland, Michigan. It was Holland, Michigan. Uh, and Hope College is there, and Fuller had a, a summer program at the college, and I was teaching a course there, and I went out for a run every, most every day, and I was out running. Of course, in Holland, if you're not Dutch, you're not much. And everybody's got blonde hair and blue eyes, and I'm running you know, down, and I'm in the park, and there in the park, or a bunch of blonde-haired, blue-eyed teenage kids doing breakdancing. This was 1984, something like that. Where did breakdancing start? New York City. What happens in New York is going to happen across the country. What happens in L.A. is going to come this way. The crack epidemic that I experienced when I was working with kids in Los Angeles and Pasadena when I was at Fuller, I said, oh, my gosh, I saw families devastated. 13-year-olds running drugs for the gang members. Crips and Bloods. I never met Crips and Bloods till Los Angeles. The crack epidemic ruined so many families. And I said, when will that get to Memphis? It got to Memphis five years later. Cities are amplifiers of good, amplifiers of evil. Cities have always been amplifiers. That's why Paul's 
journey, his missionary strategy was in the cities. Well, let me point out a few examples of, of real cities and, and see if, if, if God does love cities. I, I want to talk first about the Twin Cities, not Minneapolis, St. Paul, not Memphis, West Memphis, but Sodom and Gomorrah. I mentioned those cities. We all have images of, of, of Sodom, right? Well, uh, Sodom is mentioned 34 times in the Old Testament, 17 times in the New Te Testament. We know that Abraham, the Abrahamic na narrative in Genesis Chapter 18, where Abraham begins to plead with the angel of the Lord not to destroy the twin cities. They were evil. God was going to destroy them, the angel of the Lord said. And you know, how, you know how, what Abraham does. He begins to plead with the angel and says, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. If there are but ten righteous people there in Sodom and Gomorrah, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? And you know what the angel of the Lord said? No, I would not do that. And, of course, we know what happens to the city. They don't find ten righteous people there. Lot was not all that righteous, but he was there. Abraham was trying to save his nephew, but the cities are destroyed. But you know what? We read that passage, and we, we're often so quick to read, we don't study. We don't look. What is God trying to teach us? You know what I read in that passage? The presence of God's people would have preserved that place. There's a direct correlation between the presence of God's people and the preservations, preservation of places. You get that? Ten righteous people would have saved both cities. There are churches on every corner in Memphis. Righteous people. What are we doing? Jesus calls us salt and light. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you are the salt. He's talking about the church. Believers. You're the salt of the earth. You're, you're the light of the world. You're the, you, know, you don't hide a light. You set it on a hill. And, if, and, and the salt preserves. The salt gives spice. The salt preserves... We're often, as conservative evangelicals, are known for what we're against, not for what we are for. I want to add spice to life. Jesus, people wanted him at parties. You realize he was invited to feast all the time. Jesus was not a doomsday person. He brought spice, preservative to life. Why are cities in such turmoil if there's a church in every corner? That's a question we need to ask ourselves. What are we to do? That is the question. The presence of God's people preserve places. But only if we engage with the single mom, the prostitute, the orphan, the widow, the gang member. You know, and Joe is an expert at this, but you know why kids join gangs? They can't join a family. You can't join a family, but you can join a gang. A gang provides that familial interaction. We need to get close to gang kids if we're going to get them out of that. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. So the presence of God's people are preservers of places. Now another city we might mention is Nineveh. You know that city? It's one of the capital cities of the Assyrian Empire. You know, the, the back the story there is you'll remember that uh, after Solomon's death, uh, Israel had a civil war and they split into two kingdoms. Northern kingdom was called Samaria, the southern kingdom was called Judah, and of course was headquartered in Jerusalem. Well, the Assyrians were at war off and on with, they were, they were the Nazis of the Middle East. They were a bloodthirsty group. They were at war with everybody. So over time, of course, they overthrew the northern kingdom deposed many, many people, killed thousands and thousands, 
and the northern kingdom would never be reestablished. Israel, the northern kingdom, would never be reestablished. There are two minor prophets dedicated to, the, to, the, to Nineveh, uh, Jonah and Nahum. And uh, we're going to talk about Jonah. You know, he gets his marching orders, go to the city of Nineveh, that great city, and preach against it because it's, it's, it, it, it needs to repent. And we know what Jonah did. He went the other way. He went as far, uh, as far west as he could on the Mediterranean. And um, he gets a bad rap, but if, you, if we think that uh, Jonah was prophesying during Jeroboam II's reign, which would have placed this time 50 years after Assyria's, uh, the Assyrians had devastated the northern kingdom. So now put that in your mind. 50 years after the Assyrians had devastated the northern kingdom, God is telling Jonah to go to, the north, to, go to Assyria and preach it to repentance. It would be like asking, it would be asking an African-American to go to a Ku Klux Klan rally and tell them to stop burning crosses. Can you blame him for not wanting to go? I wouldn't go. He didn't want to go. He gets a bad rap, but he goes anyway. Of course, it takes a miraculous intervention by God, called a whale, to get him to go the other way. But isn't it interesting, if you read that passage, Jonah is on this boat, the sea is raging, all the people on the boat are Gentiles. Why do we know they're Gentiles? Because they're praying to their various gods for safety. Now, isn't it interesting, Jonah hadn't told them about Yahweh. He hadn't mentioned that his God. So they go get him and say, what's up? He said, throw me overboard and you'll be saved. And they didn't want to do it. They had more compassion for Jonah than Jonah had for the Ninevites. So they throw him overboard. And, of course, the sea is calm. And you know what, those, you know what the sailors did? They worshipped Yahweh. They made sacrifice and offerings to the God of the universe. Isn't it funny that they were converted right there on the spot by this miraculous sign, but Jonah kept his mouth shut? That's an interesting story. Anyway, he gets to Nineveh. Now, he's, uh, he's, it takes him a long time to get back there. He not only has to go back to the coast, uh, go back east, then he's got like a month journey on a camel or a donkey to get to a serious. He's got plenty of time to think about his sermon preparation. Now, you know Sandy. Sandy starts, uh, starts his sermon preparation on Mondays, and you know he never uses notes. I've got notes up here. I've never seen any one thing like it. He doesn't use notes because he starts practicing on Monday. Jonah had three months work on his sermon. He gets to, he gets to Nineveh. What does he do? He, takes, he, he walks the whole city. It takes him three days. Now, that's a big city. I think I could walk from downtown Memphis to Carrieville and around in three days. He's preaching as he goes. This is a major city now, and it's a walled city. So I'm assuming that the walled cities where the elite lived, that was the gated community. The suburbs were where all the poor lived and the farmers and the, and the ranchers. And, but he walked the whole area for three days. He had a great sermon. Forty days, Nineveh will perish. That, 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 that's a gospel message full of grace and truth. Forty days, Nineveh will perish. They repented. No word about grace. No word about compassion that he had just experienced in his own life. But he doesn't mention it. Why? Well, in modern day language, Jonah was a racist. He did not want the God of the Jews to save anyone that didn't look like him and didn't eat kosher. He didn't want the Assyrians who ate ribs all the time to be saved. They weren't kosher. They weren't the chosen people. 
How dare, how dare God be, not be a respecter of persons? I keep the law. I keep kosher. He's supposed to like me. I go to church every day. I have a job. He's supposed to like me. Last chapter, Jonah's sitting, waiting for the sea. He's still hoping that God's going to destroy him. He's doing this. Oh, I hope he, but now he's mad. And God, of course, says, do you do well to be mad? And he says, yes, I'd do well to be mad even to the point of death. Here's what the Lord says. And should I not have concern for this great city, Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many cattle? What's that about? Here's a city. Israel's arch enemy destroyed Israel, yet God is concerned for this great city. And could it be that the 120,000 that don't know the right from the left are the children, that don't know the right from the left, and the cattle is their economy? They were, a cattle, they were the Chicago of the Middle East. They were cattle people. He was concerned about the children, concerned about their economy. He's concerned about people having jobs to, to feed their families. And this city would have been about 400,000. If you have 120,000 children, a little math, you know, two, two children, a car in a garage, so forth, so on, 400,000, 500,000 people. And in that day, in the ancient world, that would be more akin to a city like New York, New York City. Or we might cite the city of Babylon. That was the other arch enemy that destroyed the southern kingdom. Jeremiah chapter 29. Jews are living in exile in Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty says, chapter 29. The God of Israel says to all those I have carried into exile. The Lord says, I've carried you into exile for a purpose. From Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses. Settle down. Plant gardens. Eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and daughters. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity, the shalom of the city to which I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. For if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, reflect on these passages and we think about our mission in the world. And as followers of Christ, we know that we live in two kingdoms. We belong to the kingdom of God, but we're living in exile because we know we have a future home. And our future home is the new Jerusalem, an urban reality. But until that time, until someone takes us out or we succumb to older age or whatever, or until the Lord returns, we live in this city and also in the city of God. And while we do that, we want to think of our city as a playground and how we build playgrounds. So let me get back to Zechariah's vision. Now we know it's the vision of the New Jerusalem. It's, it's a future vision. But to give you the backdrop, the Jews had been allowed to return to Jerusalem from the Babylonian captivity, the Persian Empire. Uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, you know those books, those are post-exilic. But Zechariah is a post-exilic prophet after the exile. The temple was in the process of being rebuilt there in Jerusalem. 
And the context for Zechariah's vision in chapter 8 starts in chapter 7. And that, if you read that passage, you'll find that what God is saying to Zechariah is that God hates mere ceremony and empty religion, empty rituals. God hates that. Uh, instead, he encourages them to pursue true religion. And here's what Zech, uh, God says is true religion. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Get this. Administer justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. That sound like love one another? This, this is, uh, do not, it goes further. Do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of one another. That's Zechariah chapter 7. This is how God describes true religion of the heart to the people in Jerusalem. That's Zechariah chapter 7 verse 9. If they do that, if they seek true justice, if they show mercy, if they have compassion for one another, if they don't oppress the widow or the orphan or the poor or the alien and not think evil of one another, then God says he promises a future blessing for the city of Jerusalem. A city where, in chapter 8, where boys and girls play in the streets and old folks with cane in hand sit on the porch drinking lemonade watching them play. Now, I look around this room and I see some gray heads, bald heads. We remember the day when we played football in the streets. We remember when we played stickball, corkball. Remember corkball? A little cork. Played in the streets safely. Parents watched us on the porch. Those are the days that Zechariah envisions the New Jerusalem. And it's the portrait that we want to paint for Memphis. Now here's the connection. Jesus tells us how to pray when his disciples say, he said, you know, John the Baptist, he taught his folks how to pray. Jesus, how do we pray? And he gives them the Lord's Prayer, right? And in that prayer, he tells us to seek his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Have you ever put your head around that? That's pretty radical. Seek the king, his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's our job. We are building and trying to expand God's kingdom in Memphis as it is in heaven. What does that kingdom look like? Well, it's a kingdom where there's playgrounds and not battlegrounds. It's a kingdom where kids play in the streets and the elderly are not afraid to go outside where they're taken care of as well. And I think Zechariah uses children and the elderly because who are most vulnerable in our communities but the children and the elderly? So one of the first things I learned over my ministry career now, which is like 41 years, has always been focused on the city and urban areas, is that there are many assets in our neighborhoods. There are a lot of playgrounds, a lot of wonderful leaders and people, but they're often overlooked and marginalized because of our classism, our racism, and we devalue folks that don't look or act quite like us. In fact, I believe the the primary reason why government programs fail is they never take stock or listen to the people they're trying to serve. I mean, they come in with the answers and the answers don't work. They actually hurt communities and not help. 
And as an aside, I want you to realize programs don't ever save anybody. Relationships do. If programs are not about building relationships, you've got to scuttle the program. Relationships are what matters. I've never seen a kid from a gang. I've never seen a prostitute walk, walk in Summer Avenue. And we have a ministry called Restore Corps trying to get kids out of the sex trafficking. This is one of, our, one of the programs we administer at MLF. I've never seen a homeless person, the Calvary Rescue Mission, or Union Rescue Mission come out of homelessness except for relationship. Someone builds relationship. Now, how do we apply this? I've got a few minutes. I want to just give you some practical application of what I've learned over the years. The first, first one is listening and discovering the assets in urban communities is the first step in building playgrounds. Listening and discovering the assets in urban communities is the first step in building programs, uh, playgrounds. The primary assets are the people. Too often churches in the suburbs or ministry, parachurch ministries from the outside come into a neighborhood with a program, uh, with an agenda, uh, trying to help the people they serve. And when this happens, you know what happens? Resentment on both sides. Resentment on the part of the people in the neighborhood because they were never asked to be a part of it. Resentment on the part of those coming from the outside because no one appreciates them. You ever been there? The only way to build a playground is to build it together with the assets in the neighborhood. The second thing I want to leave you with is that playground, building playgrounds takes time. Takes time. Playgrounds aren't built overnight. Communities didn't become impoverished overnight. There were systems at work over decades, over centuries, even centuries that led to communities of despair. Slavery, Jim Crow, unjust housing codes, job discrimination, broken justice systems, separate and unequal education, I go on and on. Individual sin always leads to corporate sin. And so we had these systems at place all conspired to disenfranchise whole races of people. The passing of civil rights legislation could not immediately erase hundreds of years of injustice. So this sort of systemic injustice is still at play, and it takes time to turn it around. It takes dogged determination over time to continue building playgrounds in the heart of our city, even if we don't see the results we want. A third principle of building playgrounds is to avoid providing relief when, until, unless absolutely necessary. There are many cases where relief is called for, hurricanes, tornadoes, a house burning down, an apartment complex devastated, but even then, we should seek opportunities to develop the talent and, uh, and, and talent of the people that are being served. Relief, if done without a view toward development, leads to dependence on the part of those receiving relief or paternalism on behalf of those providing it. So relief, only when necessary, always toward development. I would commend to you Bob Lupton's book, Toxic Charity, or Brian Fickert's book, When Helping Hurts. Charity can be toxic if it leads to dependence on the one hand and paternalism on the other. The fourth rule of playground building is servant leadership. This is a warning against top-down leadership. Instead, we must adopt servant leadership, giving ourselves away and training up neighborhood leaders. Of course, our model for this is Jesus himself, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I've been at ministry in the heart of Memphis for decades. 
but I realized a long time ago that top-down never works. Going in with the answers is simply unworkable. Only the residents of the community itself can build the playground and solve their own issues. We can help by being servant leaders, listening, asking questions, coming alongside, but we can't go in with ready-made solutions. And the fifth principle I would leave you with today, I have a lot more, by the way, just a few of them, is the idea of practicing holistic ministry. We never compromise the priority of evangelism. But we must hold together the proclamation of the gospel with the doing of the gospel. Never one without the other. The gospel is exceedingly personal, but it's exceedingly social at the same time. You know, Christians, followers of Christ, we're the only ones that can talk about salvation from sin and destruction, while at the same time being concerned about public transportation. We're the only people, those who follow Christ, that can talk about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ at the same time engaging public schools. We can do both. We not only proclaim the gospel, but engage ourselves in seeing that every child in Memphis receives an excellent education. We can do that. We can hold both those intentions, proclamation and doing of the gospel. And the final principle today is incarnational witness. That is living out the gospel in relationship. Programs are only platforms for relationships. I call this living the gospel out loud. Of course, it's modeling Jesus himself who became flesh and dwelt among us. That was drilled into me by Young Life years ago, winning the right to be heard, building relationships with young people. I was in uh, D.C. a few months ago preparing for uh, some consulting with a major church in New York City, which many of you know about. This church is planting churches all over the world, but also in New York. And the leadership of that church has asked us as leadership foundations to help them understand how to get involved in playground building, how to really engage the neighborhood. They didn't have a ramp, didn't have an on-ramp. And so we're working with this group because they understand, this church, this megachurch in New York City, understands that apart from incarnational relationship, church planting will not work in desperate neighborhoods. They get it. Let me conclude with this. Years ago, uh, 1975, when Becky and I started in ministry with Young Life Urban Ministries, we moved into a community called Orange Mound. Many of you know Orange Mound, where Melrose High School is, the largest African-American community this side of Harlem. And we built relationships in the community. That's what we were taught to do in Young Life, is to build relationships on the playgrounds, on the basketball court, hanging out, football games, basketball games, at the school. That's what we were taught to do. And you know, if you know about Young Life, you know you have a weekly club where you proclaim the gospel, you have a, a weekly Bible study they call campaigners, and of course the summer camping, which is second to none. But the genius of Young Life was called contact work, building relationships with kids. We call it contact work. Simply being present and building relationships. Yeah, one, one young man in particular comes to mind. He was getting kicked out of school every day, almost every day around 10 o'clock, for fighting or cursing. Kids just picked on him. He was a big guy. Failing in most of his, his courses. Nobody liked him. They picked on him, but he had terrible acne. Terrible acne, and I, and I tell you terrible. You've never seen anything like it. 
And because he lived in apartments known as garbage gardens, folks knew how to push his button. And I can only, you can only imagine why they called his apartment garbage gardens. But Becky and I had a relationship with this kid. He started coming to Young Life. I, don't, I can't remember to this day how he ever got there. But I knew his story. I got to know him. I knew his dad had left when he was eight. His mom worked 12, 14-hour shifts at Baptist Hospital in the cafeteria every day, cooking at the hospital. He had no medical care, had never had breakfast except a package. You remember those, uh, package, those white powdered donuts? That and a Coca-Cola is what he had for breakfast every morning, which is why he had the sugar blues at 10 o'clock in the morning. Got in a fight. That was his breakfast. Garbage Gardens was right behind our house there in Orange Mound, and so as we got to know him, Becky began to make him breakfast every morning. We'd come over to the house and have eggs and sausage and pancakes and have a, some protein. And because of our contacts, actually a doctor right here at Second Press, a dermatologist, I got him in to see her to start taking care of his acne. Well, his acne cleared up. His, uh, he didn't get the sugar blues anymore because he had a good, healthy breakfast every morning. And uh, over time, he became, he, he became a Christ follower accepted Jesus at summer camp. So we began to talk about his anger management and fighting, and uh, that, that improved. His grades improved. His life began to change. And it turned out he was great in math, but no one knew it. He went on to college, graduated with a math major, and now is an air traffic controller and actually trains all the air traffic controllers at one of our nation's largest airports. Now, I tell you this story not because we did anything great, but we did enter into a relationship. Relationships change lives. But guess what? Becky's in my life has changed even more as a result. This can be all our stories if we get engaged. So God is about building playgrounds, not battlegrounds. Places where people can flourish and have hope. The church... Followers of Christ, the people of God, have to be leaders in building playgrounds. God is at work. He's doing this work. Our job is to find out where he's doing it and jump on board. Let's pray together. Lord, you are building playgrounds even when we don't see it. We think of our own city. We think of Chicago, and now Orlando, Los Angeles and the pain and despair in many of our cities that don't look much like playgrounds. But Lord, that's as much our fault as it is anyone else's. We can't pass blame. We have to get involved. Thank you for the people in this room that I look around and know that are engaged in building playgrounds. I praise God for them, for this church that has been so instrumental in helping build playgrounds. So give us a vision that Zechariah has, that we want to see our city filled in this, with, with children in the streets playing stickball or football or whatever, soccer, with old folks with cane in hand sitting on the porch in safety watching the children play. That's the city we want. You've given us the task to help make that happen. Give us the grace, the courage, the stamina, and the vision to see your city, the city of Memphis, as you would have it be. Christ's name we pray. Amen.